Chapter 3 of The Wild Northland by William Francis Butler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3 The long, hot, dusty American summer was drawing to a close. The sand fly had had his time, the black fly had run his round, the mosquito had nearly bitten himself to death and during that operation had rendered existence unbearable to several millions of the human race. The quiet, tranquil fall time had followed the fierce wasting summer, and all nature seemed to rest and bask in the mellow radiance of September. It was late in the month of September, 1872, when, after a summer of travel in Canada and the United States, I drew near the banks of the Red River of the North. Two years had worked many changes in scene and society. A railroad had reached the river. A city stood on the spot where, during a former visit, a midnight storm had burst upon me in the then untenanted prairie. Three steamboats rolled the muddy tide of the winding river before their bluff, ill-shapen bows. Gambling houses and drinking saloons made of boards and brown paper crowded the black, mud-soaked streets. A stagecoach ran north to Fort Garry, 250 miles, and along the track, rowdyism was rampant. Horse-stealing was prevalent, and in the city just alluded to, two murderers walked quietly at large. In fine, the land which borders the Red River, Minnesota and Dakota, had been thoroughly civilized. But civilization had worked its way even deeper into the Northwest, the place formerly known as Fort Garry had civilized into the shorter denomination of Garry. The prairie round the fort had corner lots which sold for more hundreds of dollars than they possessed frontage feet, and society was divided in opinion as to whether the sale which called forth these prices was a bogus one or not. Representative institutions had been established in the new province of Manitoba, and an election for members of Parliament had just been concluded. Of this triumph of modern liberty over primeval savagery, it is sufficient to say that the great principle of freedom of election had been fully vindicated by a large body of upright citizens, who, in the freest and most independent manner, had forcibly possessed themselves of the poll books, and then fired a volley from revolvers, or, in the language of their land, emptied their shooting irons into another body of equally upright citizens who had had the temerity to differ with them as to the choice of a political representative. Civilization had also developed itself in other ways. Several national societies had been founded and were doing prosperously. There was a St. George's Society and a St. Andrew's Society and I think also a St. Patrick's Society. Indeed, the memory of these saints appears to be held in considerable reputation in the New World. According to the prospectus and program of these societies, charity appears to be the vital principle of each association. Six Scotchmen, emigrating English, and indigent Irish were all requested to come forward and claim relief at the hands of the wealthier sons of St. Andrew, St. George, and St. Patrick. Charity, which is said to begin at home, and which, alas, too frequently ends there also, having thus had its commencement in the home circle, seemed determined to observe all homelike institutions. 
and the annual dinner was of necessity a very important item in the transactions of each society. Amidst all these changes of scene and society, there was one thing still unchanged on the confines of the Red River. Close to the stream, at the place known as the Point of Frogs, an old friend met me with many tokens of recognition. A tried companion was he through many long days of wintry travel. There, as fresh and hearty as when I had parted from him two years before, stood Surf Bola, the Eskimo dog who had led my train from Cumberland on the lower Saskatchewan across the ice of the Great Lakes. Of the four dogs, he alone remained. Two years is a long time in the life of any dog, but still a longer period in that of a hauling dog, and Surf Bola's comrades of that date, Muskimote, Caribou, and Tigre, had gone the way of all earthly things. To become the owner of this old friend again, and of his new companions, Spanker and Pony, was a work of necessity, and I quitted the point of frogs by the steamboat Selkirk with three hauling dogs in my possession. Strong and stout, as of yore, clean-limbed, long-wooled, deep-chested, with ears pointed forward and tail close-curled over his broad back, Sir Folas still stood the picture of an Eskimo. Of the other two dogs, Pony was a half-breed, and Spanker, sharp, keen, and restless, was, like his leader, a pure husky. But unlike the older dog, his nature was wild and fierce. Some malignant guardian of his youth had despoiled him of the greater part of his tail, and by doing so had not a little detracted from his personal appearance. As these three animals will be my constant companions during many months through many long leagues of ice and snow, I have here sketched their outward semblance with some care. Civilization and a steamboat appeared to agree but poorly with my new friends. Spanker, failing in making his teeth emancipate his own neck, turned all attention towards freeing his companion, and after a deal of toil he succeeded in gnawing Pony loose. This notable instance of canine abnegation, in which supporters of the Darwinian theory will easily recognize the connecting link between the Algerine captives assisting each other to freedom, etc., etc., after the matter of the Middle Ages, resulted in the absconding of the dog Pony, who took advantage of the momentary grounding of the steamer to jump on shore and disappear into the neighboring forest. It was a wild, tempestuous night. The storm swept the waters of the Red River until at length the steamboat was forced to seek her moorings against the tree-lined shore. Here there was a chance of recovering the lost dog. Unfortunately, the boat lay on the Dakota side and the dog was at large somewhere on the Minnesota shore, while between the stormy water heaved in inky darkness. How was the capture to be effected? As I stood on the lower deck of the steamboat, pondering how to cross the dark river, a man paddled a small skiff close by the boat's side. Will you be good enough to put me across the river? I asked. I've no darn time to lose a night like this, he answered. But if you want to cross, jump in. The lantern which he carried showed the skiff to be half filled with water, but the chance was too good to be lost. I sprang in, and we shot away over the rough river. Kneeling in the bottom of the boat, I held the lantern aloft while my gruff comrade paddled hard. At last we touched the shore. Clambering up the wet, slippery bank, 
I held the light amidst the forest. There, not twenty paces distant, stood Pony. Pony, poor fellow, good dog, come, Pony, ses poor old boy. Alas, all the alluring dogisms by which we usually attract the animal were now utterly useless, and the more I cried, here, here, the more the wretch went there, there. Meanwhile, my boating friend grew impatient. I could hear him above the storm shouting and cursing at me with great volubility, so I made my way back to the shore, gave him his lantern, and went back into the forest while he shot out into the darkness of the river. Every now and again I heard the brute pony close to me in the brushwood. For some time I wandered on. Suddenly a light glimmered through the wet trees. Approaching the light, I found it to issue from an Indian wigwam, and at my summons two or three half-clad creatures came out. There was a dog lost in the woods. Would they get lights and help me catch him? A dollar would be the reward. The dollar threw a new light upon the matter. Burning brands were instantly brought forth from the wigwam fire, but with little result. The vagabond pony, now utterly scared out of all semblance of dog-wit, sought safety in the deepest recesses of the forest, from whence he poured forth howls into the night. I returned to the river, and with the aid of my wigwam friends, regained the steamboat. Half an hour later, the man on watch saw a dark object swimming around the boat. It was the lost dog. Sir Fola, tied in the rain as a lure, had continued to howl without intermission, and the vagrant pony had evidently come to the conclusion that there were worse places on a wet autumnal night than the warm deck of the steamboat Selkirk. In the earliest days of October, all phases of civilization were passed with little regret, and at the Rat Creek, near the southern shore of Lake Manitoba, I bid goodbye to society. The party was a small one. A member of the imperial legislature, well known in Ireland, now en route to get a glimpse of the great solitudes ere winter had closed in, his servant, mine own, five horses and two carts. End of chapter 3